This is the Impact Report. I'm your host, Katie Elman. The Impact Report brings together students and faculty in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, social entrepreneurship, and more. These conversations go live the first and third Friday of each month. This week, Bard MBA's Nicole Pamani speaks with Isaac Nicholson, CEO and founder of Circular Systems. Hi, Isaac. My name is Nicole. I was really interested in interviewing you particularly for the Impact Report as I am in the process of developing my own consulting practice dedicated to the circular economy. Um, I'm very focused on zero-waste strategy, uh, packaging solutions, and operational efficiency. So when Katie asked if I'd like to interview you, I jumped at the opportunity. So thank you so much for being with us on this call today. It's an honor and a pleasure. All right. So I'm going to jump in with our first question. Um, As co-founder and CEO of Circular Systems, what inspired you and your fellow co-founders to start this company? Oh, well... I mean, in many ways, the state of the world, which we can see more clearly now than ever, Um, you know, going back more than 20 years to when each of us as co-founders really um, discovered uh, our purpose in this space, um, it was really driven, I think, for each of us by a really clear sense that Um, industry, our financial models, the way we engage as humans in commerce is all radically out of balance. And um, the way that we make things in particular impacting our ability to thrive as a species long term um, just doesn't make sense even to this day. Uh, in in the greater markets. And um, so in each of our capacities, I think we we have been striving for many years to find the right way, to find more balance um, in the way that we produce the products that are so critical. You know, um, in this case, the the fiber, the yarn, the fabrics that go into one of our essential human needs, clothing. Very true. Um, I was wondering if you could also tell us a little bit about your professional background, the professional background of your co-founders and what prepared you for this role and maybe how all of the those backgrounds came together to create um, circular systems. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I'd like to first tell you about my co-founders because I'm so honored to be working with these guys and they're people who I've known and and admired for a long time. Um, Going back to the 90s when we all started on this journey, um, Yitzhak Goldstein, our CTO, is one of the most radically inventive minds in the realm of fiber, yarn, and and textile work. Um, And coming from a lens of permaculture and um, really from this viewpoint of 
of uh, the land and the earth and the soil. And I discovered his work in um, the fall of 1997 at uh, the Northwest Footwear and Apparels trade show in Portland, Oregon as a young designer and entrepreneur who'd been making outerwear for a few years. Um, I was a snowboarder and, you know, an athlete coming from the counterculture world of, of board sports and um, was fortunate enough to get good at that stuff and got sponsors and realized there was this gaping hole in the world of snowboard outerwear and started making that stuff. And, and with our, our brand at that time, um, which had its really social focus. Um, it was called Soup Kitchen, which was really about this class war that was happening at the resorts around the world as snowboarders who were largely kids, either from more urban backgrounds as skateboarders or just more um, counterculture backgrounds coming from this, this other world. We're going up into this elitist resort community and uh, expressing themselves in totally new ways and, uh, you know, looking different and acting different and with different equipment and all of that. And, and there was actually, you know, it was basically illegal to snowboard on all these mountains. And a lot of us from different socioeconomic backgrounds and different cultures felt like real outcasts in that resort community. In fact, we had friends who saved all their money and bought their pass and their and their gear and had nothing to live on through the year and with their minimum wage job and trying to ride every day, they were literally eating at the soup kitchens in town to survive and keep snowboarding. And, and we took that as like so inspirational and that's, that's kind of what drove the brand and the essence of it um, really coming from the underground. And uh, then I found Yitzhak at this Northwest Footwear and Apparels show, which was actually an overgrown Nike vendor fair in Portland, Oregon. But I came across this one booth and there were beautiful fabrics and that was Yitzhak in 1997, September, um, producing already what was totally progressive even by today's standards. And um, so he and I connected, but I, I really struggled to find a way to put that into our line because it was so expensive. What he was doing was beautiful, but so niche, I could hardly even um, afford a meter of it. <laughs> and uh, But eventually um, wound up, you know, leaving Soup Kitchen and, and just couldn't keep doing what we were doing in the outerwear space. And we wound that down and I went and started doing freelance design with um, some of our distributors in Japan and in Europe and eventually got pulled into some really amazing opportunities in Italy to design for high fashion and had these, you know, limitless budgets for R&D. And I got to order all these materials that Yitzhak was making for this, this big line um, shortly after my, my first child, my son was born in uh, 1998. And so, that summer of 99, I created a huge collection with all of the original hemp and organic cotton and linen and silk and started to design some of my first textiles there in Italy. And we were living over in Italy and, and it was a beautiful project. Um, but unfortunately, the people we were working with changed everything to conventional fibers and yarns and fabrics 
and it was really disheartening, you know. Um, and so wound up leaving that and, and coming back uh, to the West Coast and moved to Los Angeles and started to push that into the markets um, where I came from in the surf and skate industry. And uh, largely greeted with, you know, cool idea, hippie, you know, we'll see you later. Like, that's crazy talk. Um, and, you know, but a few years later, around uh, 2004, actually, after I launched another line to show all my friends in the industry that this could be viable, it could actually be in high fashion and sit leagues above them in, in the retail world and did that really successfully with a brand called Liberty Outer National, which was designed with great intention. All of the words and everything used in the brand was about positive affirmation and empowerment, and the fabrics were all organic, recycled, or, or coming from, from hemp, fast fiber. And um, that wound up you know, landing in all the best boutiques in the world, and that was a time before you could go on trend websites and just find out what was next from WGSN, uh, designers used to shop the high-end market to see what would be trickling down into their space in streetwear or surf a couple of years later. And so they all started to um, find the Liberty product in these boutiques in New York and Tokyo and London. And, and um, I had begun to do freelance design and private label and was rapidly taking all my friends in the industry in uh, 2000, 2001, 2002, over to China to produce accessories and apparel over there because the quality was amazing, the price was amazing. Before I knew it, I had taken a huge chunk of the industry offshore and literally killed the kind of factories I used to work in in Portland, Oregon. And um, that that was another terrible epiphany in my career. And uh, but in that moment, actually, you know, finally deciding to do it for myself and show the, the community what was possible, it started to work. And then the inconvenient truth came out in 2004. And shortly after that, I started to get calls back from some of my friends who ran these big brands in the industry, Volcom and Quicksilver and Billabong, et cetera. And, and we started to gear up and do bigger and bigger programs. So we did all of the first organic cotton t-shirts and all of the first recycled polyester board shorts and that grew and grew and grew until the fall of 2008 and then we had the financial collapse and I remember right after Lehman Brothers folded getting calls from everybody one after another hey you know we can't keep the program going we've got to go back literally I heard one guy say got to go back to the quick and dirty and another guy said it's it's just too expensive to save the planet right now Isaac these quotes still resonate with me, you know, right now in this moment, it's very different. In fact, we're, we're getting the signals and the very real um, actions from the major brands that are much different right now than in this previous financial collapse. And I'll tell you more about that later, but so that's what, that was my background and, and all of that culminating years later when I realized that if I wanted to make real impact, it wasn't about doing a, a little niche brand or dabbling in these programs with small surf labels, even though they're in the $500 million plus. I had to go to the jugular of the impact and work with the biggest brands on earth. And I had to get down to the fiber level and reconnecting with Yitzhak on that work, although we'd been trading 
in the textile space for years and years at that point. But uh, he pulled in another um, amazing individual, Yitzhak, um, called our friend Jeff Kine, who I had only known loosely in passing and more have been a fan of. Jeff Kine is largely responsible for having overturned um, prohibition of cannabis in North America working with the Canadian government going back to 1994. He and his father, he comes from a farming family, a family of accountant farmers, actually. Um, and they grew the first industrial hemp test plots with the support of the Canadian government and eventually got it legalized and created the oilseed hemp industry, the protein industry in Canada, which ultimately led to the toppling of, of prohibition across the boards throughout North America. But in, in that time, he also launched the first full-scale commercial pilot for the processing of the residues of those oilseed hemp productions and then started working with oilseed flax, which is a huge, a huge crop in the plains of Canada and in the Dakotas. In fact, almost 2 million acres and the straw from that is burned every year still to this day um, because it's so impossible to till back into the soil and there's not a lot of high value uses for it yet. But what he had done um, was to begin to create fiber products for the automotive industry, biocomposites and non-wovens and you know, sound dampening and padding and insulation and um, you know, fascinating. So in the hemp world, which I, I've been a part of for a long time as an activist and a, a person really pushing that fiber in the textile space, Jeff is seen as like, you know, one of the pioneers in North America. And so Yitzhak pulled him in because he's so operational and financial and new manufacturing and, and he's the really pragmatic backbone of our business and um, has, is a big part of why we, we are where we're at today, thriving through this pandemic. Um, so that's our background. And, and really, as founders, um, we had one, one more super core individual who came in like the glue between all of us, a gentleman named Scott Leonard, who really um scott is responsible for having co-authored the organic cotton standard you know initially going back to work with the usda and and the um the what was the organic exchange which became textile exchange which is one of the most important ngos in our space um scott was on the board there way back you know 20 years ago now and actually developed those initial standards that became the global organic textile standard. And then Scott went on, um, he, he had already been building um, incredible supply chain in Peru, in South America, um, around indigenous production of Pima cotton textiles and alpaca textiles and, and created a line literally called indigenous designs back in the late 90s, which has, has been running strong up until this point. It's right now really being impacted by this moment. But, you know, Scott has, has come aboard with Circular Systems going back uh, a few years now, initially as an advisor 
and somebody who gave me the confidence to leave, um, you know, my lucrative consulting work and the the stuff I'd been doing with private label for many years and go full on into this um, back in 2016 when we started to package it up. And um, at that time, Scott um, was sitting on the investment committee of the CNA Foundation, which is now the loudest foundation, um, one of the biggest uh, European retailers, CNA, and the Brennick Meyer family behind that organization. Um, actually, you know, one of the wealthiest families in Europe, the literally the wealthiest Dutch family, um, but with a deep, deep consciousness. Um, and they put about 40 to 60 million euros a year to work um, in in the textile and fashion space to uplift uh, sustainability and ultimately to push circularity and and now have rebranded that organization actually to focus on an even higher goal which we're helping facilitate which is regeneration but Scott's work with the CNA foundation um, helping guide that organization literally created the global recycled standard the sustainable apparel coalition which is the material sustainability index drove a lot of the most important initiatives over the last six or eight years um, prior to him leaving um, a year and a half ago to come and and start to do work with us and um, huge honor to have scott now more deeply involved as a board member and uh, eventually, you know, coming aboard with us full time, we hope. Um, but he's really the unofficial fourth co-founder, and I have to give him a lot of credit for where we are today. Some of his biggest work was in the the um, really authoring the theory of change um, around uh, the fashion for uh, the fashion for good center in Amsterdam, which has become this hub, this accelerator for all things circular in our space and um, actually when we launched circular systems um, we were really kind of ushered in there as guinea pigs but we were the first ever technology to present on their opening day and the pitch competition there with agriloop and um, went through a couple rounds of accelerator work there with our technologies and got tremendous support from that organization and i think it was in that period when scott really saw the greatness um, that could become of circular systems. And, you know, so his support um, coupled with the, the three of us um, really founding the thing initially as the operators has been pivotal. And so that's, that's where we come from. Um, literally uh, four people with over 20 years each vested in, the, in this movement of sustainability in our different capacities. And it's a really unique um, set of experiences and and experience that drives who we are. I love that. I like how um, you guys all bring very different skills together, but there's a shared passion for systems thinking, for uh, regeneration, for permaculture. Um, and I like that how you found each other in this big world. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how all of those skill sets and all of that experience led to innovative products such as TextLoop, AgriLoop, um, your orbital hybrid yarn, and tell us a little bit about your lightest touch philosophy. 
Yeah, sure. Um, well, really, the products that we're offering are um, a result of the big deficiencies we see in the in the global market and in the global supply chain. Um, you know, traditional recycled cotton or recycled textiles, it used to be that almost all textiles that weren't so degraded that they would be literally going back to the earth were recycled. And that was in a time when everything was either linen, hemp, or wool primarily. Cotton was a very new fiber at that time. So, you know, at the uh, turn of the 20th century in the early 1900s, you know, there's the term the rag and bone man. And this was, you know, the guy in London who would walk around the streets with his cart and collect the bones uh, to go into glue applications and things, you know, upcycling those those animal protein products. And he would collect the wool and the cotton rag or the, the linen or hemp rag. Um, and then all of that would be recycled mechanically. And really, the technology has not changed much since that time. But what has changed is, you know, we produce magnitudes more product, you know, beyond that. I mean, it's like we produce so fast in these cycles um, of fast fashion and so much and increasing volumes over the last 20 years. I mean, if you look at this on a bar graph, it's incredible to see how this has just spiked and now, you know, rather beautifully is being cut down by this crazy moment in the world but it's not going to stop in terms of the scale because population is bigger than ever as well so while we've been producing more and more things over the last 120 years we've been recycling less and less and less and there's there's fascinating studies on this but it's sort of the you know these these curves go in opposite directions if you could imagine the way that's graphed and, um, you know, what we do see in the remaining um, recycled textile industry, the history of mechanical recycling is incredible work that has continued in Spain, really one of the places that, that textile recycling after World War II got upgraded um, and really taken into the modern era over the last 60, 80 years. Um, and these guys around Valencia, um, these, these beautiful families that began to recycle at such a high level and blend the colors of the recycled cotton waste and offer these colored yarns, you know, uh, up until very recently, they didn't tell anybody it was even recycled. These were just great low cost colored yarns um, and they'd gotten so good at it, nobody questioned it. And um, I had the, the great fortune to start working in that region um, going back almost 10 years and, and uh, began to brand what they were doing and tell that recycled story. And, um, you know, this, this is really, you know, dawning on the new age of circularity in textiles. And meanwhile, in China, you know, where they don't waste anything culturally, you know, recycling cotton rag um, never really stopped. But generally, it's been super downcycling and going into padding and, and stuffed animals and insulation and things like this. Um, and only recently in the last few years has it begun to move toward more high value recycling and 
better and better textile applications, and we've been doing a ton of work in that space to upgrade what's going on there, and, uh, and as well as in Spain. And um, really proud of our partnerships in, in both of those regions. And that's what TechLoop is. It's really coming in to the space, working with the traditional recyclers, upgrading the process, um, more careful selection of waste streams and sorting, and you know, good in and good out is is really the methodology there. And so, recognizing this extreme need for resource efficiency with textiles, um, we've really been pushing that to the next level with TechLoop. And so, TechLoop is the world's finest offering of recycled textile fiber in yarn and fabric form. And, and that's why TechSleep exists, is to facilitate textile circularity. And what we've done mostly to date has been largely focused on, on post-industrial cutting waste, where we have organized waste streams that we can understand and segregate and get high value out of. Um, but this is all really a gigantic necessity and a pre-normative research project to unlock post-consumer, which is this gigantic jumbled mess of textile waste from every composition and color you could imagine with all kinds of potential restricted substances from old dye stuffs and even biohazard involved, you know, so a very messy waste stream that needs a whole different approach. But until we understand quite well how to get the highest value of every composition, how to manage even color effectively, how to remove those RSLs and eliminate that biohazard without creating more impact in a virgin process, um, you know, we have, to, we have to have those skills and we're gaining them. And we're working with the technology partners that have created the world's leading optical sorting technologies, uh, the fiber sort, for example, that's going to help us unlock that post-consumer waste stream at a really high level. This is optical sorting equipment that in one second can measure when within plus minus 3% the exact composition of a fabric and the color, and then kick that off down the conveyor into the right bin so that all the black um, cotton polyester lands in one spot and all the viscose that's blue is over there and we can then take those waste streams and effectively upcycle. Um, and so these technologies that are coming on now are working closely with these groups in Europe uh, to, to help propel that and um, really with TechSloop integrating with the world's best recyclers and the world's best yarn spinners uh, to bring meaningful high volume, low cost, and high quality recycled textiles to the world. So that's textile um, recycling um, really in its, its ultimate form. And we've branded it as TechSleep and we're getting incredible support, you know, from the biggest brands and retailers on earth. And we're talking Nike and H&M, you know, uh, you can see right now some of this product on the Converse website, which is, you know, now owned by Nike. Um, Converse uh, has launched the Renew collection going back about a year, and TechSleep Recycled Cotton drives a lot of that product. And you'll see very soon the launch of a, a new collection from Converse called Shapes, which is one of the first genderless um, or unisex 
clothing lines in the world designed just for different body types. And all of that is, is text loop recycled cotton. So check that out, please. Um, you know, going on to AgriLoop, um, you know, AgriLoop has been called uh, the golden chalice of sustainability by one of the world's leading systems thinkers. Uh, this is uh, Edwin Kay from Hong Kong RITA, which is the uh, Research Institute for Textiles and Apparel in Hong Kong, one of the most advanced in the world by far. Prior to that, he was the uh, CFO of Walmart, to give you an idea of the kind of systems he's dealt with. Um, Edwin Kay uh, did a an all-day interview with our CTO on, on the AgriLoop technology, um, ushered in there by H&M about six years ago. And um, at the end of, of the research on, on the technology with our CTO and really beating him up on every aspect of how the system works, he, his statement was, wow, you know, this is truly the golden chalice of sustainability. I think he was referring to the, the Holy Grail in a less religious way or something, but uh, in the same breath, he also said, it's going to take you guys 10 years at least to get this in the global market. And we're really happy to say for the sake of our world that we're actually going to get this in market later this fall. And so we're beating him by a few years. And it's fun to see him around at these global events, you know, in the last couple of years. Um, in fact, he was one of the judges on the panel um, for the Global Change Awards when we won in 2018 uh, the first prize for AgriLoop, which, you know, that's just like seen as kind of the Nobel Prize of, of textiles and fashion. Um, but what the AgriLoop is, is the world's first regenerative industrial system for textile production, maybe one of the world's first regenerative industrial systems, period. And this is coming from this incredible mind uh, of Yitzhak Goldstein with this natural systems thinking that drives him at the core. And the AgriLoop has recently been described uh, by, you know, one of the world's experts in regenerative farming practices and fiber systems um, from Fibershed our friend Nick over there uh, described it at the textile exchange conference as essentially a giant mechanical sheep. And this is going to allow you to have context to what we do, um, I think, in the simplest way. You know, so a sheep consumes biomass. Um, a lot of times it's the stubble left over from agriculture, right? So the biomass left over from our food production which is actually 60% of what we grow on a global basis on average, um, that sheep first mechanically processes it. And in this case, it's the teeth chewing it up. Uh, then that biomass goes into the belly, which is essentially this biochemical processing center. And the sheep produces biochemistry that, that breaks down that waste and turns it into nutrition which ultimately creates fiber, which we can harvest and use. And, and then finally, it also creates energy, actually, to power the sheep, to grow the fiber, to continue to eat more food. Uh, but then finally, the sheep fertilizes the field and tramples it in just ever so perfectly and improves the fertility cycle 
where he's walking around and eating. And this is exactly what the AgriLoop does at an industrial scale. So we're taking the leftover biomass from food crop production. And right now we're largely focused on oilseed flax and oilseed hemp in Europe and North America. Um, taking those residues from the food production and upgrading that fiber by using some of the waste to create energy and some of that waste as well uh, in the in the process we can create the biochemistry we need to upgrade that fiber to soften it and make it more fine and then ultimately when we're done we are left over with only beneficial effluents and super high value products and what that means is rather than being left with these caustic salts that come from traditional fiber processing or dye processing this is the use of sodium hydroxide which is actually a co-product of chlorine production um, in normal fiber processing you're ending up with very caustic waste that is a disposal problem at best if it's being disposed of responsibly with our process our residues, what we're left with, the solid waste is actually perfect organic fertilizer that we take back to the farms and feed that fertility cycle just like the sheep does. Um, so we're able to give farmers more income for what was waste, for what was actually climate liability because it's largely burned. We're reducing that CO2 production by preventing the burning. We are taking that and, and and delivering more income to these farming communities and upgrading it into high value fiber products for our industry and then delivering beneficial effluents back to the farms to build soil to build soil fertility to further sequester carbon so this has been called a carbon drawdown machine you know the agri-loop is is more than just a better way to produce fiber from food crop waste it's literally um, one of these essential factors in showing the world that we can create industrial systems that are beneficial to humanity and to our habitat. And this is where we think it needs to go on a much greater level in every industry. So the AgriLoop creates beautiful biofiber and TechLoop creates beautiful textile fiber from waste. These waste-driven systems then can flow into traditional yarn spinning or can go into our patent-pending orbital hybrid yarn system. And this is where we're changing people's whole conception of what a recycled fabric is. You know, traditionally, recycled cotton textiles, you know, even the best in the world, have been downplayed as inferior because in most cases they are the shorter staple fibers that are taken from mechanical recycling as you tear apart these fabrics you can imagine those original fibers losing length and that creates a less strong yarn product a less strong fabric that creates issues like pilling as it's generally blended with recycled polyester um, that creates problems of nets and inconsistency and less efficiency um, and and that has really prevented you know the massive growth of traditional mechanically recycled materials um, 
Additionally, you know, bast fibers are sometimes seen as scratchy or less soft than cotton, you know. And what we realized is that can all be fixed. And, and Yitzhak has innovated, again, incredibly around the, the creation of this yarn system that allows us to produce actually stronger than traditional virgin yarns, higher performing than traditional synthetics. Um, and I'm talking about moisture management that will meet or exceed the performance of Adidas Climacool or Nike Dry Fit with no chemical finishing and all recycled and organic inputs. And so Orbital is this enabling of a higher value, higher quality, higher performing yarn and fabric from recycled and regenerative inputs. And we use it very strategically when we have shorter fibers or coarser fibers. In some cases, we derive beautiful long fibers from our mechanical recycling. It's been so optimized with TextLoop. And in that case, we'll take it into traditional ring spun or open-end yarns. But when we have the shorter or more troublesome fibers and when we want really high performance for sports applications, real abrasion resistance, we'll go into orbital and we'll combine this continuous filament with our staple fibers and get this incredible high performance. And that's that's really what Orbital is doing in the market right now. And we're um, really excited to say we're signing up some of our biggest licensees for that technology to date just in the last couple of weeks. Um, so it's, you know, right now we have this synergistic platform with Orbital, AgriLoop, and TextLoop, and we're using it in combination to change the industry. So exciting. Um... It sounds to me a little bit like the problem in sustainable fashion used to be that this technology was not commercially available, um, but Circular Systems is solving that. So I'm, I'm curious to hear what your opinion is about what the next big challenge is in the circular fashion industry. What's the next big thing that the industry needs to come over to push sustainability forward? Well, I would say, you know, we're kind of having it delivered to us inadvertently right now with the COVID-19 global pandemic and the incredible financial crisis that's being, you know, driven home in this moment. Um, it's so sad and so destructive and there's so much loss happening, but it's also forcing us to rethink our patterns of consumption and the way we produce things. And it's really, I think, bringing home how fragile our habitat is and how sacred our health is. And um, it's creating this moment of <laughs> real introspection as we all sit in our houses, you know, either laid off or furloughed or working from home um, with a lot more time on our hands in some cases and literally looking inward at this this incredible crisis that has us all in this new state of concern. I mean, real existential concern. This is not some conspiracy theory or another person labeled as a hippie or activist out there, um, you know, preaching some gospel that is not scalable and, and too esoteric. This is actually the whole world and especially the textile and fashion industry right now, collapsing on itself because it's totally imbalanced and totally unprepared 
for what's to come. And, you know, there's plenty of memes out there right now, you know, like the climate crisis needs um, Corona's publicist, right? Um, we have even bigger challenges on the horizon than this right now. And the world is sort of waking up to that fact, experiencing this, and it's driving the kind of change that you just asked the question about what is necessary. What's necessary is commitment. What's necessary is not a revolution, it's a resolution to change. That resolve to do things differently as a species, not just as an industry. Um, you know, what this moment is creating, it's catalyzing um, the ability to change even, you know. Status quo, business as usual, markets based on perpetual growth, quarterly profit, the type of decision making driven by that. So destructive. And right now we're starting to see how fragile that all is and that the need for truly systemic truly radical change is there it's real couldn't agree more and i love how you brought it beyond the industry and talked about um, global collaboration and i was wondering if you have any insight onto some of these opportunities for collaboration at the individual level at the industry level on the global level mm. well thank you for teeing up a really important concept um, because the word collaboration, a lot like the word sustainability, gets thrown around in a way that has created a, a real lack of meaning or understanding there. You know, I mean, sustainability as a word means almost nothing because it's so clouded by capital S sustainability, which is marketing, you know, has nothing to do with the perpetuation of life on this planet you know, indefinitely through doing things, you know, from a natural systems perspective. Collaboration as well, you know, we go to all these big industry events and everybody talks about how they're, you know, their company's doing so great. You know, we're going to have 10% organic cotton in our line by 2025. <laughs> you know, let's all collaborate around BCI, you know, this false flag GMO cotton movement that makes it look better the better cotton initiative let's collaborate around these things i'm sorry but it's bullshit and we've lost our way we don't have a clear goal when sustainability has no meaning what is our goal when collaboration just means another trade show to talk about talking about it what does that mean you know we we've neutered these words of meaning so we've really dug down and, and like we're, we're working on changing the lexicon and the goals in our industry and making them more clear. So we've been going around doing these presentations, you know, at textile exchange and with some of the biggest companies in our space to the C-suite operators talking about a new way of looking at sustainability and collaboration. And so we are raising the bar, right? Sustainability if you're talking about sustainability in terms of achieving zero impact as the high bar, well, that's not enough to save us on an industrial or uh, species level. Zero is a pretty 
terrible goal, actually. What we need to be striving for is fixing things, and that's regeneration. That's true circularity. You know, that's cradle to cradle systems thinking. Thank you, Bill McDonough. Um, so we're we're reframing things. We're making a more clear goal in the industry, and we're going around and we're talking about let's make regeneration, fixing things, drawing down carbon, sequestering it, improving fertility cycle, circularity you know, resource efficiency for real, not a marketing concept. That's our goal. And zero impact is just a milestone or maybe a KPI in route, you know? Um, and so this is literally what we're going around and talking about um, in a, a pretty sensationally um, branded presentation that I call the end of sustainability, just because it gets people's attention. but. When we talk about collaboration, we're also reframing that. What does it mean to truly collaborate? Let's look at science and let's see how things really work. What creates a bigger push when people combine their energies? And this, this came about in a really interesting conversation after textile exchange in Milan, one of these beautiful events that happens where incredible information is exchanged. And again, year after year, we talk about collaborating and then we go home and we compete like old school assholes, you know? And we're sitting there at this dinner actually with wonderful group of people. And we just heard about, you know, how this woman inside one of the biggest retailers in Europe for many years had been actually inserting organic cotton products into the line without telling anybody because she had such power in their supply chain operations she could plug in the right stuff and they could sell it at the same price as organic and the the margin was fine she had a couple collaborators in her industry you know co-conspirators that she was doing this with but nobody else knew it was so awesome to hear the story but when the company found out about it of course they tried to brand it and they raised the price and it killed the whole effort, you know. But what I found so astounding was that there was this clandestine group within the organization doing this stuff as internal corporate activists. It was amazing. And then somehow the conversation shifted to surfing as it often does um, when you're around surfers. I am guilty as charged. And we were talking about these massive waves in Portugal where we're doing a ton of work in the supply chain there over the last few years. I mean, what a beautiful culture, what an incredible supply chain, one of the most responsible in the world inherently and moving faster than almost anywhere. And we're talking about this place in Portugal called Nazare, which has got these waves that are just huge. They're some of the biggest in the world, hundred foot waves. But if you've been there and seen it breaking, next door like i'm talking a few hundred meters away on either side of this wave the waves are a fraction of the height why is that we were wondering and somebody real quickly jumped on google you know in this amazing world where you can just check the oracle for what's behind this and they said oh constructive interference we're like whoa that's an interesting term what is that well it, it says here that it's the way wavelengths combine and become magnitudes larger. You know, it's a very simple description of it, but this is actually physics. This is science. And this is the alignment 
of wavelengths, whether they're sound or light or water, um, when you get two wavelengths syncing up and you actually have refraction of other smaller disruptive wavelengths coming into it, um, which I see in this case as like giant organizations in our industry syncing up with big NGO support and then the rabble rousers, the resistors, you know, whether that be the certifications that are demanding the transparency and the real authenticity or the innovators, you know, like us coming in and the, the heretics um, calling bullshit on, on the false flag, sustainability, whatever, those small wavelengths hitting these combined wavelengths create what happens at Nazare. This is constructive interference. It's modeled. Check it out. This is the way it works. And this is true collaboration. So collaboration is not a bunch of people sitting around talking about um, how aligned they are and no um, diversity of perspective. Everybody just agreeing and yeah, that's beautiful. Let's all agree, but let's challenge one another to be greater. Let's challenge one another to be more authentic. Let's, let's make sure that our conversation is real. Um, let's truly combine our energies. Let's hear what those heretics are saying. And let's take it to heart. Let's not be so egoistic that they're shut down and out of the conversation, right? And this is when the great wave occurs. And this is what's happening right now. And that is constructive interference. And that's the new form of collaboration that we're talking about in the industry. One thing that I'm wondering is how consumers can support circular systems and the industry and all the good work that you're doing. Um, how can we align our wavelengths? How can we create our own constructive interference? What should we as consumers be aware of when we're out there shopping for clothes? How can we avoid those marketing pitfalls? What should we be asking brands and the industry at large to increase transparency? I mean, this is the big moment to vote with our wallets. We, we do need to know what to look for. It's so hard as a consumer. And I, and I just, I'm sorry, but I hate to call human beings consumers. It's part of the problem. Um, is that we constantly refer to ourselves. You know, we're sitting here in the industry in our high tower talking about the little consumer down there consuming things, you know, driving our business. It's like, no, we're all human participants in the now and what will be the future. And if we don't have a clear understanding of what we're actually consuming, we're likely to be consuming a lot of disinformation, a lot of toxic food, a lot of really bad products that are going to threaten our children and all future generations. And this, this won't last much longer. We're experiencing it. So what we need to look for right now are truly authentic and certified products. And we need to demand that, right? If you're not, um, you know, just buying vintage and trading clothes, and, you know, wearing things until they're just like falling apart and, you know, focused on buying high quality stuff that's going to last a long time. You know, if it's not used, it better be recycled or organic. And it better not be 
fake sustainable product, you know? So when you see the BCI label on stuff, just know that that is GMO cotton, chemical intensive cultivation, glyphosate, cancer, neurological problems, birth defects, genocide, right? I'm sorry, but like that system needs to be seriously improved. I mean, I I know they're talking about it, but it either needs to be scrapped right now because every major brand on earth is putting that label on their cotton product because it's like this marginal improvement, but the, the bar has not been set high enough in that system. There is no high bar for a transition to organic, much less regenerative. So don't buy BCI, you know, unfortunately there's just not enough cotton in the world, much less enough organic cotton. So even a lot of organic cotton is fake, you know, so, like, I guess if you see BCI blended with TechLoop recycled cotton, which is bound to show up in the market, okay, you got some incremental change. Maybe you should go for that. If you see organic cotton, go for that. You know, if you see hemp, if you see linen, you see the organic version of those things. And when you see AgriLoop and when you see TechLoop and when you see Orbital, you can trust it. It's about finding the certifications like the global recycled standard or the recycled content standard about the global organic textile standard GOTS, look for that, or look for the organic content standard. Look for those things. Um, Those are the essential factors, right? We'll have more transparency in very near term because the brands know right now coming out the tail end of this, Really, their only chance for survival, if you're one of the real big players like H&M or Nike, some of our biggest partners that we're working to really enable for the new paradigm because they're authentic in their goals. You know, if, if you're one of these brands, you have to right now be factoring in that consumers are coming out of this thinking about health, they're thinking about the future, they're thinking about survival, They don't want to buy the same old status quo stuff. And you're going to see more and more of this now showing up in the market. There will be more opportunity beyond just vintage clothing or used clothing in in this space, you know. But whether it's food, clothes, or shelter, we just got to choose really wisely right now. If it's energy, right, it better be renewable. We need to really be vocal as participants in the global economy, you know, as quote unquote consumers. Um, we have to start to ask for it, you know, ask for it and and demand it. I don't know what else to say. It's so hard to find um these options sometimes, but we can't we can't let that limit our voices. We gotta keep demanding it. And and the best way to do that is to not buy the stuff that we know is either fake or status quo old school product. Isaac, it's been an absolute delight to speak with you. Thank you for sharing so much wonderful information. And um, I look forward to seeing what Circular Systems does going forward. Thank you. Learn more about Circular Systems by visiting circular-systems.com. Join us for the next episode of the Impact Report on Friday, June 19th.
we'll be speaking with Mitchell Joachim, co-founder and director of research at Terraform One. For the complete lineup and other news, visit us at impactreportpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Sustainability is one of a select few graduate programs globally that fully integrates sustainability into a core business curriculum. Learn more at bard.edu/mba.